Last fall, we began a series on Galatians, and we hit pause, if I can find it. We hit pause while we celebrated Advent, but now we're going to go ahead and, and resume that series, and just by way of kind of catching up and remembering the spirit of that letter, Paul is entering into a really important debate uh, that really was taking place in, uh, throughout the early church. Uh, you see references to this uh, point of controversy in many of Paul's letters. There was also a gathering, you can read about in Acts 15, in Jerusalem, where church leaders came from all over the place to debate this central issue. And what happened was that just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave his disciples really important instructions. He said to go and bear witness to Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth, the things that you have seen and witnessed uh, in me. And so that's just what they did. Beginning in Jerusalem, uh, they, uh, many Gentile converts came to faith, or sorry, many Jewish converts came to faith in Jesus Christ during that time. But as the apostles uh, spread uh, out, namely Paul, took the gospel beyond Israel, what happened was the gen- there were many Gentile converts to the faith in really significant numbers. And there was a crucial question as, uh, as Jewish converts and Gentile converts both came to faith in Jesus Christ, there were crucial questions about what their fellowship and their life of faith together looked like coming from these, uh, these different uh, backgrounds. And the critical question was about the perseverance of certain um, Jewish practices uh, that, that, that these Jewish converts had grown up in, certain identifiers that, uh, that set them apart as Jewish. And, uh, and there were certain teachers, we'll call them Judaizers. Paul had several more colorful names for them, uh, that were teaching that these Gentiles needed to adopt these Jewish practices of circumcision and dietary laws in order to fully belong in the people of God. And, if you'll, and you'll probably have noticed as you read Galatians and, and, and several other places where this is referenced, Paul gets very riled up when he's talking about this issue. Because for Paul and for you and me, as we talk about this, the fidelity of the gospel message is really at stake here. The sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice and what makes us fit to belong as full members of God's people is the heart of the question behind this, this, uh, this debate. And as we arrive at this text, I'll look at 326 through 47. As we arrive at this text, what we're, that's exactly the place where we're arriving at, is, uh, is the crux of Paul's argument about how our identity in Christ is in our faith together is all we need that fully unifies us as his body. Let's look together. I'll start with verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, 
though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, in these writings, we feel you writing to us and reminding us who we are and how you feel about us and all that we inherit through Christ. And so I pray over this time you might stir in our hearts a real desire to love you, to hear from you, to be reminded of these truths that you would use this text to assure us of our standing before you and that you would help me, your simple servant, to honor you with what I'm saying and to love these friends well during this time together. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A friend of mine sent me a photograph of an article from the Tacoma News Tribune in April, that was on April 11th, 1953. And here's the headline. There will be no escape in future from telephones. Fascinating. What were they saying in the 1950s about the future of telephones? Just to give you an idea, the tele- that was about the telephone had been in existence for about maybe 75 years, something like that. And, uh, and at, at this point in time, there were about two-thirds of American households had at least one telephone in it. They were all landlines. And uh, some of you might remember what they looked like. You kind of held them in your hand, and like a handle, and it kind of went up, and they had that braided cord, and they had the rotary dial, you know. It, was, it looked black and sleek and hip um, at the time. And uh, there was a prophecy about the future of the telephones in this article from an expert. This was uh, the president of the Pacific Telephone and Telegraph Company. So Telegraph still existed back then. And uh, this is what he said. In its final development, the telephone will be carried about by the individual. Perhaps as we carry a watch today. And it probably will require no dial or equivalent. And I think the users will be able to see each other if they want as they talk. That's a little on the nose, isn't it? <laughs> I wonder, as he said those things, and as you know, it was put out in the paper and all that, if people might have thought he was a little crazy. Like, like, if people wondered as they were hearing this, if he was, they would consider him a bit of a dreamer. But what he understood, and I don't know how many people else were with him on this, but what he understood that he was trying to get everybody else to understand was that there was a very dramatic, that was a very, with the invention of the telephone, a very dramatic thing happened in in our past that was going to have vast implications for what our life together looks like in the future. 
And in some way, Paul is doing the same thing in this passage. He is telling us that something very dramatic happened in our past with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that has dramatic implications for the life together of those who belong to him. This passage begins and ends with articulating who we are in Christ. He says, if you are in Christ, you are a son of God. He says, you have been baptized into Christ. He says, you have been put on, or you literally wear Christ. And what Paul is saying, in so many different ways, is that if we truly understood the vast implications of our identity in Christ for all who believe, then we probably wouldn't be having this argument. And so what he does is he lays out in this passage the things that, the things that, the things that all of those who claim faith in Christ, who belong to Christ, have simply because of their identity in Christ. And here's what I'm going to say. I can't cover, it's so thick, I can't cover everything, but I'm going to name three things that we see in this passage that all of those in Christ have because of their identity in Christ. I'm going to start with all of the, we all have, we see our belonging in this text. We see our status in this text. And here, because of our identity in Christ, we see our assurance in this text. So first, belonging. Really, if you look at this passage, um, it says really um, incredible implications, the truth of what it looks like for us as God's people. Um, uh, this text speaks to that. But one of the things that Paul is saying is that in Christ, we have significant belonging. It begins with saying that we belong to God. Verse 26, in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. He's simply saying that we are his. And because we belong to God, we also belong to each other. Look at verse 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Now that's really profound. Because what he's saying is that there's this radical attachment that happens to all of us who come to faith in Jesus Christ, where we, where we become in radically attached to God himself, and he attaches us to God's people through the ages, all the way back to Abraham. And, and that's why he begins to talk about how he begins to name some of the classic divisions that we have used to pull us to, that, that we have used to pull apart from each other, and says that they have simply no place in the kingdom of God. And he names them for us. It's interesting. It's just as true for them as it is for us today. He names racial division when he talks about there will be neither Jew nor Greek. He, he names socioeconomic or vocational uh, distinctions where he says there will be neither slave nor free. And he names our gender distinctions when he says there will be neither male nor female. He's saying, he's saying these things that, that have served through history to, to pull us apart from each other will have no place in the community that God is building through Christ Jesus. And one of the things I want you to see is that he is establishing a place of belonging for his people simply by virtue of their faith in Jesus Christ. That just by their faith, they belong. 
And, and, and you, see, you, see, you, you see God's desire to establish the belonging of his people really all through Scripture. And when you think about this, think about God leading his people through a wilderness to a place that he has promised them, a place that they'll belong. And when you think about this, think about God's call to his people to also provide a place of belonging for the foreigner and the sojourner who was traveling with them. Belonging mattered. It was a part of God's heart for us. You think about God's promises to restore his people from exile that he articulated through his prophets. And you think about one of Jesus' promises to us. He said, where I am going, I am, I am preparing a place for you. He is articulating a promise of belonging for God's people. And I don't think it's too bold to say that our desire to belong, a desire to belong lies deep in the hearts of every one of us in here and every person that we meet. There was a study not long ago, I think it was about two years ago, it was an MIT study that suggested that we crave meaningful relationships in the same region of the brain where we crave food. And they said that we experience social exclusion in the same region of the brain where we experience physical pain. And it's simply saying that belonging isn't just something that we want. It's one of our most basic needs as humans. And, 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 so, and so this speaks to us, I think, powerfully during what I can only call a great season of disruption for our places of belonging. I mean, one of the reasons, there are many reasons, and I don't want to belabor this, but one of the reasons the pandemic has been so just flat out exhausting for us is because it has disrupted our lives and the places of belonging that we've come to rely on. Like our relationships to all of these important things, like where we work, where we work out, where we buy our coffee, where we see our people throughout the day, where we fellowship and worship together, our relationship to all of those important places that remind us of our belonging has just yo-yoed back and forth over the last couple of years. And that has just been incredibly hard for us. We, we, we have desired to reestablish our belongings, our, our place of belonging, and, and, and we've felt it kind of given and taken back from us. It's been hard, right? And so one of the things I want you to see here in this passage is that I want you to hear that the promises of the gospel given to you through Jesus and nowhere else is that your belonging matters to God. That he has been laboring on behalf of God's people to establish your belonging all your life and that there will come a time when the shifting sands of a fallen world will become firm again and you won't doubt you won't you won't have cause to doubt your place of belonging so we see the promise of this but i think we also see a call to provide belonging for each other and for the people around us like but what better witness for god's people that when the world watches us they see us in sweet belonging to each other, providing a place for belonging for them. And it, it, I, this is a call that we would be a people who represent what this divine div- vision of belonging looks like. That because of Jesus, we have become a family. That we are filled with brothers and sisters in this room. That when you look around, you look around and see brothers and sisters and, and parents and grandparents and crazy uncles and crazy, like, you know who you are. They're part of our family, okay? 
And we are called to provide this belonging for each other that we would learn to prioritize each other. That we would prioritize our relationships and our friendships and the needs of each other. The one another verses in the Bible bear testament to this uh, throughout. What does it say? Pray for each other. Bear one another's burdens. Teach each other. There's this call always toward God's people that he would be drawing us together and that we would find our belonging in Christ alongside each other. And so this is a call, this is a promise, but this is also a call, belonging. We also see status here. Why is it important for Paul to talk about status in this text? Why would that be important in the debate that he's talking about? Well, simply because of this, because, because there were... Um, These Judaizers were teaching these Gentile converts that until they did certain things, that they were less than these Jewish converts. That there was some kind of, there was still more that you had to do in order to gain equal status as members of the body of Christ. That your faith alone wasn't enough. And so what does Paul do? He begins to talk about the status that we all have as those, who, uh, as those who belong to Christ. And he, le- he like launches right into this, right at the beginning of the text. He says, in Christ, you are sons of God. And when he's talking about that, he's, sa- he's talking about certain status that we have in the household of God. And many have taken offense at this because, uh, and I don't know, that might be you, that might not be you, but because he, he seems to be singling out sons in this passage. Um, remember, he just said earlier in the passage, there will be neither male nor female, right? But here he's saying that we are all sons of God. What's going on there? In fact, there are some translations that are so concerned about that language that they have literally replaced sons of God with children of God because of that concern. If we were to do that, we would miss something dramatic that's going on here that Paul is saying to us. Because in the households in Paul's day... The son was the person who had status in the household. The, the son was the one who, who stood to inherit the house, the, the estate. The daughters did not. And what he's saying to us, to all of us in this room, male and female, is that we are all heirs. That we are all sons. That we all have status as sons of God in the household of God by our faith in Christ. That's what he's telling us. And this is important, this should stand out to us a little bit because we see passages where other passages where God calls his people his son. In Exodus chapter 4, this is really fascinating. He's burdened for his people because they're in slavery. And so he is mustering up Moses to send them to him. And what does he say to Moses? He tells Moses to tell Pharaoh that Israel is his favorite son, that they matter to him. And in Hosea 11, when God is describing his love for his people, it's a beautiful chapter. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. That each of you, simply by belonging to God through faith in Christ, have significant and inviolable status in God's eyes. And he has made you an heir to the very inheritance of of Christ simply because he put his affection on you. It's the same for us as it is for these people, that our status comes because God somehow chose to simply put his affection on him. And so Paul's saying 
These Gentile Christians, don't let anybody take your status as one of God's beloved sons away from you. You walk with your heads held high. Your faith in Christ has secured all the status you need. And I think if we were to stop and come up with a definition for status, this is really important. We would come up with something that relates strongly to how somebody feels about you, wouldn't we? Like that, that's mostly how we define status in our communities. How somebody feels about you, how your boss feels about you, how uh, maybe kids, how your parents feel about you, right? Uh, how uh, people that you care about feel about you. That's mostly how we define status. And I'll tell you, just from the heart of a card-carrying people pleaser, that's a form of slavery. That's like jumping on a, a treadmill that only speeds up and never slows down. What Paul is saying to you is that your status as a member of God's people is all wrapped up in how God feels about you. And, and, and we see how God feels about you simply, simply by what Jesus Christ was willing to do for you. How do we know our status? That God showed our, his love for us in this, that we were still sinners. He sent his son to die for us. He sent his son so that we would become sons. That's your status. So we see belonging, we see status, and then we also see assurance here in this passage. And uh, golly, I, I, there's so much that we could say here about this, um, uh, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just try and unpack a little bit here for you. Paul is describing something that might have looked curious when we talked about an heir, as long as he's a child, no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. That might have seemed a little confusing to you. What he's describing is how God shepherds his people through history. Uh, in this passage. And uh, what's going on here is that in that time, under Roman law, a child heir was a minor under a guardian until age 14, okay? That's the way it worked. And then uh, was to still some degree under a trustee until age 25. That was the normal pattern for the child heir until a time, a coming of age, when the child comes out from under the rule of his guardian, okay? And all of this occurs under the watchful supervision of an attentive, ideally, of an attentive father attending to the growth and maturity of his son. That's the idea, is that the father is, is establishing systems in this son's life for their growth and maturity. Um, and so this is the illustration that Paul is using to describe a couple things. One, is it simply a uh, history of the progression of God's people from slavery to the giving of the law? He said, when the fullness of time came, he sent Christ to be with him. He's describing that kind of like an, an, a way of understanding God's relating to his people and how he's been bringing them along the whole time. But in a more narrow sense, for you and for me, he's also using it to describe who we once were. That we were once slaves to elementary principles in the world and that we are no longer that anymore because of the watchful and attentive shepherding work of God on our behalf, that he has always been shepherding us into relationship with him through history, that Abraham's family has been under the watchful eye of God himself, and he sent Christ to be with us. And so we can look at God who sent Jesus Christ and our relationship with Jesus Christ and see simple assurance that God cares very much about who we are all the time and our future with him. 
And this is important to us. Why? Because we fail so often, don't we? Like, there, it's so easy for us to, to, to look at our relationship with God and think about ways that, that uh, if I were God, I would have let me go a long time ago. That my sin at times overwhelms me. And yet we see this assurance of God's will, his heart, his shepherding work toward us, and that he sent his son to die for us. And not only did he send his son, we also see that he sent his spirit. And this is really important. Verse 6, he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is an assurance to us because, listen, this is what the spirit does in our hearts. That it leads us to cry, Abba, Father. It's telling us that it leads us to be able to cry out to God, our Father, in a very familiar way. Because Abba is a very familiar term. It simply means Daddy or Papa. This is the cry of a child who is incredibly confident in his father's love and warmth toward him, especially from a place of need. And the spirit who, in, who has been sent to you leads you in being able to call out to God in a very familiar way, even from a place of need. That the Spirit's work in our heart brings us assurance of our ongoing relationship with God. Listen, just as an example, you all know what it's like to hear somebody pray and you, you kind of struck by what, like, I am witnessing a relationship between that person and God that I want. Because it seems to be characterized by warmth and familiarity, right, and ease in their relationship with God. It must be long-term. But what you're witnessing is the work of the Spirit in that person's heart that has led them to a general sense of comfort in their relationship with God, that God brings us to that place. It's really incredible and wonderful. That's what you're witnessing. And so we have assurance because God sent his Spirit. And why do they need this assurance? Because Paul's telling them that the same Spirit that resides in these Jews also resides in these Gentile converts. And listen, the same Spirit that resides in you resides in the person next to you. It unites us but it also assures us as a body. Okay, I think I'm running over time, but let me bring this to some kind of conclusion. Uh, Thinking about fathers and sons this week had me thinking about my own father this week. And I know not not everybody can, um, he's going to kill me for telling the story. Um, I know not everybody can say that their father's presence in their life was reassuring to them, but I'm grateful that I get to say that about my dad. And we have this family, this this story in our family that uh, exists in some kind of family lore, and we all have different interpretations of what happened, but here we go. Um, We uh, we were all kids, and uh, we were at a rest stop somewhere in America, okay? It was one of those long road trips, and and he... um, I believe my mother and father were just resting and letting their kids burn off some energy uh, at a playground. And, uh, and when they all heard it happen, like there was screaming and crying and they looked up and they see me and one of my sisters running at a dead sprint back to my parents' house, back to where my parents were, okay? And my sister is obviously distraught. She's like crying. She's got her hand in her hair and she's upset, and she's running, and, uh, and it looks to my dad like I'm not running because I'm upset. I'm running because I'm concerned 
about what's going to be said about what I just did. Like, you know, when you're a kid, you know that feeling when you're a kid and you got to run to be the first to tell somebody what happened because you need to control the narrative? That was me, okay? And, uh, and, you know, my sister beat me back to my dad, to my eternal shame. She was the one who arrived first. And here's what she said. She said, Charles spit his gum in my hair. That was what she was, she was so upset about. And to, to which I, after I caught my breath, said, no, I didn't. I was trying to bite her, and it fell out of my mouth. <laughs> that was, that, I'm not kidding. On, on that, that happened, the whole family is, is unified on that. But here's the beautiful thing, and the reason I'm telling you this story, because of what my dad did in that moment. He got down and looked each one of us in the eye, and he said, you are my children, and I love you very much. And then he looked at my sister, and he said, this is your brother. And then he looked at me, and he said, this is your sister. And he said, we are a family, and it's time we acted like it. And in some ways, that's what Paul is doing for these Galatian uh, Christians here, and in some ways, that's what he's doing for us as well. He's saying, because of what Jesus has done for you and because of the ways that he has pulled us together, we, we belong with each other. We all have the same status before God and Christ. And we all have the assurance because of Jesus Christ that we have before God. And he's calling us to be the family he's calling us to be. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be among us, assuring us, compelling our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. Help us. Help us to help each other. Help us to love you and to find ourselves in you. Our identity in you, Christ, has implications for our lives that we will spend the rest of our lives considering. So I pray that you would lead us in that and give us this place of assurance. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.